Hello and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become more real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power from the scriptures and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Gary Mielstein, and I'm so glad to have with me today my longtime friend and colleague, Eric Huntsman, uh, who is currently in Jerusalem as the Associate Director of the Jerusalem Center uh, for Near Eastern Studies, BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. He's also, uh, I think you did your, your doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania in, in uh, Roman, uh, I, I think classics basically with Latin, but Roman history, uh, and taught uh, that at BYU for quite a while, and then moved over to our department and teaches all sorts of stuff, uh, and uh, especially classes, uh, well, New Testament for the most part, but He's done some specialty classes on John, even for our faculty. He's written a wonderful book uh, that we'll talk about as we go along. Uh, If I have the title right, it's Becoming the Beloved Disciple or something along those lines. And so seemed like the perfect guest to talk to us about John chapter one. So welcome, Eric. Hey, Kerry. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you, by the way, after having been gone for a while. Yeah, it's it's good to see you. So (laughs) tell us a little bit more about yourself or your family. Well, as you mentioned, my my research and writing emphasis has been on the new testament gospels the ministry of jesus but in particular the gospel of john you mentioned that i'd done my phd in ancient history and greek and roman history i had done classical greek and latin as my undergraduate major at byu but it was actually john that got me interested in greek i had taken a greek the new testament kind of honors class with Wilfred griggs back in 1984 which got me interested in greek i went on my mission to thailand and came back and changed my majors to greek and latin got sucked into that classical vortex and was just doing all things Greek, Roman, and heathen. But then I kind of got religion, as I joke, uh, and came over to ancient scripture to teach New Testament primarily, also Book of Mormon and Old Testament, whatever they need me to teach. But I came back to the Gospel of John, which is the very thing that got me into Greek. So it's kind of a nice you know, ring composition, to use a Herodotian term there. So it's always been interested in the Gospel of John, and in particular, the way it portrays Jesus and you mentioned this book that I did a few years ago, Becoming the Beloved Disciple, Coming Unto Christ of the Gospel of John. I, I also found that in addition to teaching so much about the divine Christ, and we'll talk a little bit about Christology and how the Gospel of John differs from the other Gospels in a moment, I also have found the secondary theme throughout the Gospel, which is this idea of encounter. How do people respond to Jesus when they encounter him? And so uh, we, we often talk about the high Christology in John, how it portrays this very divine Jesus. And I'd like to spend a lot of our time talking about that because that's been meaningful to me. That's why I like John so much. But in the second half of chapter one, it introduces the secondary theme of discipleship. So when people encounter Jesus, if they respond positively to him, how do they follow him? And, and that's what that little book was about. So coming up as we are in Come Follow Me on the first chapter of John, I think the two themes of that gospel, the divine nature of Jesus and our own role as disciples are both really illustrated in that chapter. So I think it's a great way for the church to be introduced to the gospel of John. Well, perfect. Then I think that takes us right to where we want to go. Before we get going, let me just give a preview, a bullet point preview of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about um, really some key words in the gospel of John and what they help us learn uh, about what John's trying to teach us, but also about Christ. We're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about what John is trying to teach us about Christ and who he is and how that differs from the other Gospels, and some time really getting into the meaning of some of these verses and what they teach us, not only about Christ, but our relationship with him, about discipleship, his and our relationship with the Father and the Holy Ghost. Um, and we're, we're going to look at some key themes and how those themes help us be disciples, but also how they help us understand the Gospel of John better. 
so that by the end of this, I think you'll be able to understand the Gospel of John better throughout the, this course of study for this year, but throughout your life, these themes will really help you get more out of John and understand Christ and come to Christ better. Why don't you uh, help us jump into John chapter one and tell us some things that have really uh, spoken and, and been real to you. Sure. If I can just take a couple of moments and, and revisit that funky term I was using, Christology, it's going to explain mm -hmm. why the Jesus and John has been real to me, kind of going in line with the theme of your podcast. When we talk about Christology, it's the way New Testament geeks discuss how the Gospels portray the person and work of Jesus. So what does it mean when we say Jesus is the Christ? Well, obviously, he's the divine son of God. But what does that mean? And, and how is he different from us? And, and how do the Gospels portray that divinity perhaps differently? And then the work of Jesus, of course, is salvific work, how his suffering, death, and resurrection have brought about our own immortality and potential for eternal life. Um, the reason, you know, a lot of times when I teach the Gospel of John, after I've already done the other Gospels, I ask students, what is appealing to the Gospel? What's appealing to you in the Gospel of John? And, you know, they list the things that John has that the other Gospels don't have, you know, particular episodes that you don't find in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Um, talk about the dialogues in John, the symbolism of John, all of these kind of things. But what really drew me in is that the Jesus of John is the Jesus I was converted to when I was a high schooler senior of high school as i was kind of becoming reconverted to the church i don't know if you mind if i tell a personal story real no quick. no please do i'm a multi-generational latter-day saint family huntsman's kind of a, a utah name my family's from southern utah families go back to the pioneers but i was raised all over the east coast upstate new york pennsylvania for a good deal of my growing up and then my last two years of high school jackson tennessee in the western part of tennessee so i went from this kind of catholic presbyterian environment in Pittsburgh down to this Bible belt. I often said that Tennessee was the buckle of the Bible belt. And all my friends were born again Baptist and evangelical Methodist. And and I was kind of, it's not that I ever really doubted my testimony, but for the first time I was confronted with people who seemed to know and love Jesus as much or even more than I did. And so it was a little disorienting for me a bit. Uh, you know, they were always trying to get me to be saved and be born again and that kind of thing. And so I I decided that I would go back to the things that my mother taught me. Uh, so much of who I am really, uh, and I'll try to keep my emotions in check here, so much of who I am really is a result of my mom. You know, I, I learned everything I know about Jesus and my mother's knee, but it wasn't just what she taught me about Jesus. My mom was one of these wonderful service-oriented persons, someone who really lived the gospel, restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And she, I could just watch from her life what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And my mom taught me not only Bible stories when I was young, she read to me from the Book of Mormon. And so as I was a little disoriented my senior year of high school and trying to understand my testimony and how it compared to the testimony of my born-again friends, I decided I'd read the Book of Mormon again. And, you know, we've always been taught you read the Book of Mormon, then you Moroni 10 it, right? You get to Moroni 10 and you pray yeah. if these things are true. And if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith's a prophet, and Joseph Smith's a prophet, the church is true. <clears throat> well, you know me well enough, Carrie, that I don't ever do anything easily. You know, it's <laughs> more complicated than I need to. So rather than doing that kind of deductive approach to getting testimony to Book of Mormon, I decided I was going to do it inductively. I was going to read painstakingly the Book of Mormon and pray over each chapter. <laughs> and so I was just reading each chapter and I was just really attracted to what it said about Jesus, you know, and of course we now know it's the, another Testament of Jesus Christ, but it wasn't, that subtitle wasn't in it when you and I were growing up, when we were younger, it was just, you know, the blue book of Mormon, right? Yeah. So anyway, I was working through first Nephi and second Nephi, got a little stalled on the Isaiah passages, which I know hurts your heart as an Isaiah specialist, but anyway. <laughs> when I was, when young, I was younger, I did, I did too. 
<laughs> yeah, didn't I didn't know the things I know now about it. But I got this passage in Second Nephi 33, and I get to Nephi's final testimony and his challenge to his readers. So I'm in Second Nephi 33:10, and now my beloved brethren, and also the Jew and all ye ends of the earth, hearken unto these words and believe in Christ. And if you believe not in these words, believe in Christ. I guess the reason that struck me so hard is because that was the question that my friends of other faiths were asking me. They didn't believe in Joseph Smith, that they didn't believe the Book of Mormon could possibly be true. And you know, here's here is Nephi saying, if you're not going to believe this book, at least believe in Jesus. And I did. But then it goes on, says, if ye shall believe in Christ, you will believe in these words. And I it just the spirit came over me so powerfully that everything that had been taught about Jesus up to that point. And every time the Lord spoke in those first two books of the Book of Mormon, and we know that that's the premortal Jehovah, that's premortal Jesus Christ speaking, it was familiar. And I realized that what I had been reading were the words of Christ. And I just got a testimony at that point, which has been an anchor, no matter where I've been in my walk of faith the last 40 years, um, since I was 16, I, I always can think back to that night that this happened. And I know that the Book of Mormon had the words of Christ in it. Well, then the next question is, you know, and you go on, and of course, you get to third Nephi, right? And there's the risen Lord showing up to the Nephites. And there's just something about the way Jesus is portrayed in the Book of Mormon. Elder Porter years ago said that the New Testament Gospels give us the facts of the atonement. The Book of Mormon gives us the doctrine, and the Holy Ghost gives us the application. And I love the Gospels, and that's what I specialize in. But, you know, the Gospels don't really explain the atonement. They, they no. explain what happened to Jesus, but you, the theology is in this book. But also the fact that it's the premortal Jehovah who is guiding these people, and then the risen Lord showing up in Third Nephi. I mean, there's no doubt that Jesus is divine. In fact, I remember the first time I taught Religion 121 after I had transferred from classics to ancient scripture. I was teaching the freshmen, and we were starting with the title page purpose of the Book of Mormon. And I kind of tricked them. I said, okay, what are the title page purposes? You know, this record is to bring us to a knowledge of the great things that that the Lord has done for our fathers and mothers and bring us to a knowledge of the covenants and then bring us to a knowledge that Jesus is the, and I waited and they all biffed it. You know, they're like, Jesus is the son of God. I said, no, that's not what it says. He's the eternal God manifesting himself to all nations. And that great touchdown scene in 35, 11, when the risen Lord, you know, touches down and bountiful. He says, I am the God of Israel and the whole earth. Now see, this is what New Testament scholars would call really high Christology. Usually the four Gospels are kind of arrayed on a continuum saying that Mark has the lower Christology, it's the most human Jesus, and then Matthew and Luke stress the divine conception, miraculous birth, it's a higher Christology. And then as we'll see in a moment as we start reading John 1 together, John has this highest Christology, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. You know, it's almost uncomfortable for Latter-day Saints because we're so careful to differentiate between members of the Godhead that we say, you know, God the Father, and then Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and the Holy Ghost is the Comforter. You know, we don't usually say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, as some of our other Christian friends do. But this verse makes it clear, in the beginning was the Word. We'll discuss in a moment why the evangelist uses Word as a title for Jesus. And the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Was God, yep. He was himself divine. My point being, this Jesus that I had so powerfully been impressed upon me coming to the Book of Mormon as a teenager— this Jesus of the Book of Mormon is the same Jesus I was finding in the Gospel of John. And so as I talk to students why they like the Gospel of John, and we come up with these lists, 
I always tell them the real reason I love the Gospel of John is because this is the Jesus I know and worship and love. It's the one I was raised with by my mother, and then I was getting a testimony of with the Book of Mormon as a teenager, and now as an adult, as someone who has specialized in a particular book of scripture, it's the one I see all over the place. So back to the theme of your podcast, the scriptures are real. Well, the scriptures are real because Jesus is real, and it's not just the man of Nazareth. It is the divine babe of Bethlehem, and it's the man by the sea, and it's the man suffering in the garden, dying on the tree, rising the third day, you know, with healing in his wings, and it's the real Jesus who's going to come again. So that is just why I have absolutely loved John, and this opening part of chapter one, the first 18 verses, just speaks so powerfully to who the real Jesus actually is. And then, as I said, the rest of that chapter says, what, what happens when we encounter him? How are we going to respond to him? What does discipleship look like? And what's interesting is it's not always the same for everyone. There are some common denominators, some sine qua nons, things without which we, we can't be a disciple. But discipleship can be different depending upon who you are, your gender, your race, your background. And the Gospel of John actually gives us models of this. All kinds mm -hmm. of different people have different faith walks in that Gospel. Perfect. That's that's powerful stuff, and I couldn't agree more. So let's let's jump in. Should we, should we sure. do verse 1? Yeah, so just to kind of lay this out for our listeners, um, John chapter 1, at least the way I like to look at it, divides into two main sections. Verses 1 through 18, where we're going to spend most of our time, is what some scholars call the Logos hymn. And I'll explain what that term Logos means in a moment and why this is a hymn. And then the rest of it, 19 through 51, is what I call the great chain of witnesses. You see the prophet John, John the Baptist, and he bears witness to two of his disciples. And then they go and get Peter. And then Peter goes and gets Philip. And then, you know, Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. And you just see how people share their testimonies of Jesus and how they all come to him. Now, let's explain those two terms, logos and him. Um, logos is the Greek word for word. But as you know, for your work in different languages, Carrie, um, Translation is not always an exact science, right? Yeah. Yeah. One word in one language doesn't map directly to another word in another language. It's sometimes you've got these kind of constellations of meanings. It's what philologists call um, semantic breadth. Yeah. And so although... And, and some words have a, a much deeper meaning than it can be conveyed in a different language. Right, exactly. Um, and so the word logos or logos is sometimes pronounced can be translated as word, but can also be thought or idea or logic. Our word logic comes from it. Expression, principle. If you look in a big Greek dictionary, it will go on for two and a half pages, all the possible meanings. So the reason we call the Logos hymn is just to kind of preserve in our mind. It's more than just word. I'll right. be with the capital W in our King James text. And so we're going to see what it means that this real Jesus we're talking about is in some way the word of God. Him, what does that have to do with? Because of my background in classical Greek and Roman literature, I'm, I'm always attracted to poetry and drama, etc. And, and the book of John is both poetic and dramatic, I would suggest. It's not poetic in the way Greek literature usually is. Some people may have read the Ill and the Odyssey, the great Homeric epics, at least in translation in high school or history of civ classes in college. But Greek poetry is what we call, it's based on metrical patterns. So patterns of long and short yeah. syllables rather than rhyme schemes as much, but not all English poetry is. I know from your work in Hebrew, a lot of Hebrew poetry, although there is rhythm and there can be rhyme, it's mostly about figures of thought, you know, parallelism. Yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting to me is that you have 
more or less parallelism in the poetic passages of John, but in Greek. So it's yeah. not metrical as you would expect Greek poetry to be, but there's this Semitic influence, which just goes to show the author is actually a Jew, right? I mean, this yeah. is all the thing we try to do is see the Jewish context. But what's really interesting, is there's a great scholar named Raymond Brown who says, yes, this opening passage is poetic, but actually every time Jesus speaks, it's semi-poetic. And I think what this is trying to illustrate is that when the narrator talks about Jesus, he uses this elevated way of describing him. And that's why these opening 18 verses are largely poetic. And then when Jesus speaks in the body of the gospel, the way he speaks is qualitatively different from the way other people speak. I don't think the Aramaic of Jesus was necessarily that different from the Aramaic of Peter. But what the author is trying to convey is that when Jesus spoke, it felt differently. And we would say that's the spirit, right? That's the power right. of the divine Jesus speaking. And so the discourses of Jesus are kind of semi-poetic. Um, we can maybe post this on your show notes. I've actually laid out from the King James, not my own translation, but from the King James, how these 18 verses can be laid out as if they're poetic. And I'll just go ahead and read this, pausing so we can see how those those lines fit together. So just Good, and, at, and then send me the link and we'll we'll post. Yeah, them. yeah, absolutely. So in the beginning was the word. Once again, logos means word. And then the next phrase or line, if we're going to make it laid out poetically, and the word was with God. Now notice what happened. The last idea word is the first mm -hmm. idea in the second line. Right. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Okay. So you've got two parallel lines there. The word was with God. The word was God. Okay. And then it goes on. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Now, I want to come back and analyze those verses in a moment. But what's really interesting is in the next two verses, we shift from talking about Jesus and this kind of semi-poetic structure, and we start talking about the witness that's sent by God, who's going to be the prophet John, right? We call John the yeah. Baptist in the Gospels. And that's just prose. So you can lay out the first five verses poetically, but then six and seven and eight are just every day, because he's just a normal dude, right? He's a yeah. normal guy. Yeah. But then when we shift back to Jesus in 9 through 14, it becomes semi-poetic again. This was the light which lighteth every man that cometh in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And then it shifts back to John one more time in 15. So you've got this kind of comparison and contrast. We've just gotten through Christmas, and uh, in fact, in Gospel Doctrine yesterday, my wife is teaching in Sabbath school, and she was doing Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And, you know, Luke 1 and 2 is really interesting because you have the miraculous birth of John, the Baptist and the divine conception of the birth of Jesus. You've got the two stories kind of as foils to each other, comparisons mm -hmm. and contrast. You kind of have that going on in the 18 verses of John here. Yeah. You yeah. have Jesus and John. And just like John's birth was miraculous, old couple couldn't have kids, something they do, but it's not, it's not divine. You have yeah. the same thing going on here. You've got Jesus. Wow. Poetry. And you've got John mm, just prose. <laughs> yeah. But I want to go back then and talk about why the evangelist used the term logos or word here. Aristotle taught that one of the things that differentiates human beings from other animals, because in Aristotle's minds, humans were animals, was logos. People have ideas, reason, thought. Now, animals have instinct, 
Animals can even communicate in some sense. I don't know how ants do it, but they obviously communicate, you know, when they're making their colonies and that kind of thing. Yeah. And birds and dogs can kind of communicate, but they're not really conveying ideas to each other. Right. Okay. So Aristotle's idea was that a human being can have a thought or an idea or a principle in her mind or his mind. And then we articulate it as words that we speak. And then another person hears those words and then translates those into her own thoughts in her head. Okay, so you're transferring a thought or an idea from one person to another. Words are also how we get things done. You tell someone to do something. What's really great about this opening chapter of John, in fact, much of John, is John constantly echoes Genesis and Exodus. Yeah. So opening verse of Bereshit, of, of the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God said, yep. let there be light. So God's creating by talking, yep. right? Well, he said what? He said a word. Or several yes. words, let there be light. And that's what's being echoed in John 1 1. In the beginning yeah. was the word. And someone from a Jewish background would immediately have caught that. Would have immediately oh, yeah. the parallel with Genesis. Absolutely. Yeah. And the idea is God the Father, to, to use that title so we can differentiate the members of the Godhead here, he has a plan. Okay. He has a blueprint for creation. And the way Genesis presents it is he speaks. Well, what we're getting here is he speaks. Well, that means Jesus is the conveyor of his idea or plan, just as yes. a word is the conveyor of the idea from one person to another. So what this is laying out is that the pre-mortal Jesus Christ, this divine word, is the agent of the Father. So it's laying out that Jesus is the way God the Father communicates with his creation, how he actually affected his creation. And that's a lot packed into just a word. Yeah, oh, yeah. In, in fact, so I, I've often said it this way, and I'd love your feedback on whether uh, I, I've been teaching correctly or not. But but I've often gone through some of the things you're just talking about and then said, in some ways, what this passage is telling us is that Jesus is the Father's will and principles incarnate. When when it, what he is, what he wants, what he does becomes real in Jesus. That's where we see it. That's where it happens. It's 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 where it meets the world is through Jesus. He's the Father's will incarnated. Would, yeah, would yeah. I want to I want to reserve incarnate for verse 14 because we actually okay, do right. become that's, incarnate. Yeah, yeah, we actually yeah, become that's, that's incarnate. Fair. So maybe yeah. embodied or manifested, right? Okay, manifest is a good way. Yeah. Or personified, right? So, yeah. so that's what's going on here. So the Can same, I ask one other question if it's all please. right? Uh, I'd, I'd love your, your feedback on this. And this goes back actually to, to Wilford Griggs, who we both have learned from. He's been a mentor for both of us. So there was a time when I was with Wilfred and we were teaching some students about Egyptian stuff. And I was uh, I was uh, explaining the Egyptian concept of Ma'at. And, and it's and we won't go into it too much here, but just this idea that it's everything the way it should be. It's it's everything right, both socially, cosmically and every other way. Just the rightness and correctness of the of the cosmos is embodied in Ma'at. And Wilfred turned to me and he said, I think that's the real meaning of logos. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, we have biology. It's the structure of life, you know, geology, the structure of the earth, the pattern, right? That's another way you could yeah. express yeah. it. You know, it is the plan. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the plan is a good way it's of saying I mean, there's so many words we could use for this. And this is in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And, and something else 
to remember about John is words always mean more than they would mean <laughs> if yeah, you just yeah. looked at them. Light is not just these light bulbs above me. It's not just electromagnetic you know, radiation. It's actually illumination. It's spiritual light as well yeah. as physical light. And this will become, correct me if I'm wrong, but this will become a big theme in John that I'd like to ask my audience to keep looking for, the theme of light sure. in Jesus. And Chapter God. 7, 8, 9 in particular, right? Yeah. At the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, where you, yeah. light and water are the big themes there. And water- And yeah. John 3, too, I think. Water's not just H2O. Water is yeah. also the means of life. Yeah. It's actually parallel with spirit, which seems almost counterintuitive to us, Okay. But anyway, all these concepts are just in there. So notice, for instance, verse five, the light shineth in darkness. Oh, I actually go back to four. In him was life and life was the light of men. So life here is not just the metabolic processes of, you know, respiration and reproduction and, and all the things that cells do. It's spiritual life. Yes. Life is all eternal life. It's always so much more. And those it's it's logos life. Yeah. And that full meaning of life is the same as light. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. So the word there for comprehendeth it not, you know, sometimes we beat up on our King James translator friends too much. Um, they're doing the best they can with the language in the form it was when they did it. Yeah. The problem is our language has changed, so we don't always catch the, the, the shifts. Comprehend to us just means to understand something mentally. But it was it was more inclusive you know, back at the time the King James Bible was being translated. So if you go back and look at the word in Greek, it's katilapen. Uh, katilambano, which is the present form of that verb, means literally to take something down. <laughs> okay. Now, if you take something and hold it in your head, you understand it. That's where we get our modern sense of comprehend. But this is more like sacking a quarterback, taking him down. <laughs> and so what you get here is the darkness didn't understand the light. But more importantly, the darkness could not overcome the light. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like the overcome. Yeah. And then, as I said, we have this kind of, you know, prosaic. There was this guy, this dude sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness of the light. He wasn't the light. But then we get back to the poetic form in verse nine. This was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. It's not just shining a flashlight on him. It's illuminating him. It's opening his spiritual eyes. It's filling him with light. Changing yes, who exactly. he is by filling him with light. You know, and and suddenly, I mean, this is one of the uh, occupational hazards of being a Latter-day Saint. You know, we can't read any scripture without thinking of restoration scripture. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we're always talking about the Book of Mormon here. I'm thinking of Doctrine Covenants 88, right? You know, right. there's wonderful things about the light of Christ, which proceeds from the presence of God and fills the immensity of space. Or later, also poetically in that chapter, you know, the sun rolls upon her wings, you know, and the moon yeah. rolls upon her wings, you know, and, and all of this is just completely consonant. Um, with the Gospel of John. In fact, Blake Osler years ago wrote an article in Dialogue where he talked about how Joseph Smith's revelations in the first year and a half or so were very Pauline. It's about salvation. It's about justification. It's about sanctification. But then he starts to move into more Johannine categories. Yeah. And you certainly see that in those, you know, those one, not that we have a favorite section of the Doctrine and Covenants, but some of our favorite sections of the Doctrine and Covenants are very Johannine. Yeah. So, 76, 84, 88, 88 93, you know. Yeah, those are very, very Johannine. And of course, you know, since the scriptures are real, we know that we know the answer to this. It's because the author of scripture is not a given apostle, prophet, or poet. Right. The author of scripture is the Holy Ghost. You know, it's coming from the same source. But it also so comes through us and is affected by us. And and I think like section 76, he's 
translating the Gospel of John and, and the Joseph Smith translation at that point, I, mm-hmm. I, I think he has Johannine language in his mind as he's doing those right. things. It comes out uh, that right. way to some degree. Right. So this is the true light, which lieth every human being that came into the world. I'm just being gender inclusive there because anthropos in Greek means men and women. Aner is masculine and, and gine is, is female. He, the word, was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. By the way, um, since you mentioned our friend Wilfred, um, I remember when I was first learning Greek from him and reading the Gospel of John with him, you know, he would go over what cosmos actually was or cosmos actually was. Mm-hmm comes from a verb which means to organize, cosmeto. Yeah, yeah. He used to always say, you know, when your wife puts on her makeup, she's organizing her face with the cosmetics. But his point was, this is not ex nihilo creation, right? This is yeah. organizing things. So he came into the world, and the world knew him not. And this is another place where we can kind of play with the Greek. In verse 11, it said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. This is verse 11. Esta idia elthen. Okay, so the first own is a neuter plural accusative. He came to his own things. Now, mm-hmm. some people try to fudge on this. Some scholars say, oh, that's just a that's just a, a, a idiomatic way of saying his own possessions or his home. He came into his home. But mm-hmm. the actual meaning is he came into his own things, his own creation. Mm-hmm. But his own hoi idioi, this is masculine plural nominative, so it's masculine this time, his own guys, his own people did not receive him. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because his creation does receive and obeys him. I, I always get the, the chapter, the reference wrong. Is it Helaman 12 or Moroni, excuse me, Mormon inter, kind of interjects and he talks about the dust moveth hither and thither at the word of Almighty God, oh, yeah. that people repent not or something. The yeah, idea, yeah. The dust moves. When God says move, it moves. When God says repent and serve me, people are like, well, maybe. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So his own people don't always accept him. And and we're only talking about John 1 here, but as you move into the first 12 chapters of John, there are these seven miraculous signs, which more often than not are the organized creation responding to the word of Jesus. He says to water, be wine, and it is. Or he says to an invalid or a blind person, be healed and see, and it does. It's because the, the physical parts of the body are responding to him, even if the, if the volitional part, right, the, the spirit right. doesn't. And that's the difference that he so often makes is that as people we have a choice to make and some mm-hmm. choose correctly and some don't everything else just does what it's told yeah well back to book of mormon again father lehi things to yeah. act things to be acted upon yes right yeah but as many as received him he gave them power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name now i used to wrestle with that because being raised as a latter-day saint and singing i'm a child of god from as young as i can remember we know that we are literal spirit children of heavenly parents. We know that we are already sons of God. And so this verse is like, well, what do you mean you have to become the sons of God, aren't we? And someone who helped me understand this early on was Bob Millett. He used to be our dean. You know, he used to talk about what he called regaining lost status. We were children of God, but because of the fall, spiritual death, we're separated from God. And we're trying to regain that status as actual children of God. There may be another way to look at it, though, um, and this isn't the chapter to do it, but if it were, um, you know, we have different kinds of parents. So our heavenly parents gave our spirits lives. Our earthly parents gave our bodies life. But in a real sense, since in the Gospel of John, Jesus is God, 
Jesus gives us life, but it's eternal life. Yeah. There's a favorite, famous passage in John is it 13 or 14. Um, you know, uh, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. Yeah. What's interesting in that passage, it's 14. I will, um, I will, yeah, 14, 17, um, 18, excuse me. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. The word comfortless there is actually orphans. I will not mm. leave you without a parent, without a source of the means of life. I will come and give you life. Interesting. So when it says he gives them power to become the sons of God, I wonder if it's being become the children of Christ, right? I mean, we get that yeah. from Messiah 5. We are spiritually begotten of him, become his sons and daughters through the covenant we make. Yeah, in fact, I would even uh, argue this, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and I, when I go through like who our parents are in, in class, I usually have, okay, who's the parent of your your spirit and we say God of your mortal body your father who's the parent of your eternal life and they'll say Christ and I say okay let's let's put another column in there because we we have a step in between where we are born again and then we'll get to this when we get to John 3 but where we become a new creature not yet a, a celestialized eternal life kind of person but not the kind of person we yeah. already are we're born again and the father of that creature is also Christ and I think that ties into covenant and that and, and with some of the things President Nelson's been teaching lately, I, I would just even feel more strongly about this, that part of what it means to become the sons or the children of God, and this ties in with what you're talking about in the Book of Mormon with both Mosiah or Alma, uh, the elder at the Waters of Mormon and so on. As you become a child of God, it's because you make a covenant and that allows him to change your nature. You become born again and you have a different relationship with him. That covenant creates that different relationship with that higher access to his power that President Nelson was talking well, about. Well, it's interesting we often talk about as being um, born of the spirit. Yeah. Right? You know, and so Adam and Eve, when they were cast out of the presence of God, mm -hmm. they died spiritually through the fall. Yes. We die spiritually. I mean, this is sounds awkward because we know little children are innocent and pure, but innocent and pure is not the same thing as not being with, it's right. different from being not not being with God. Yeah. So through our birth, we're separated from our Heavenly yeah. Father. And, and the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses both teach that clearly. At birth, we are, we're dead. We're, we've we've right. got a problem. Right. Even though you we're may innocent, be we're dead. innocent of sin until your age of accountability, but you're still separated from God, which is the yeah. Book of Mormon's definition of spiritual death, is when you're separated from the Creator. Yes. And what's interesting is we kind of have the members of the Godhead incrementally reintroduced to our life yes yes <laughs> so you receive the gift of the holy ghost and if you have a constant companionship with the holy ghost you have one member of the godhead with you spiritually yeah so and that so is that a being born death has been life. partially overcome through that baptism by fire yes. and then when the time comes we're really jumping ahead with john 14 and section 130 but when you have that sure knowledge um, of christ and he manifests himself to you Right. Yes. I will come and be with with you. I will be with you. He'll be the other comforter, the second comforter. Then we have two out of three with us. Yep. And then we finally are resurrected, which is what brings us back to the presence of God, at least for judgment, but hopefully forever. In the celestial kingdom. Then we have three for three. So it's interesting. You know, yeah. we kind of incrementally have overcome spiritual death as the different members of the Godhead become our companions. And, that, and that's really interesting. It ties into to something you alluded to in the second part of the chapter that we probably won't be able to get to. But this idea of Christ sending, uh, well, Christ, John the Baptist being kind of a forerunner of Christ, but thus a messenger of Christ who gets other messengers who will then get other people to come to Christ and so on. And, we, and we'll see this as a theme 
I think it's also a very strong theme in the book of John that uh, as attention is, is given to the divine Jesus, he then turns that attention to the father, right? And he's going to talk about his relationship with the father again and again and again in the book of John and say, well, there's only one who is good. I only do what I've seen the father do, right? So it seems like there's this pattern that ties in with what we were just talking about with the Holy Ghost, that the father sends the son and the son will give us the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost can bring us to the son who will bring us to the father. But then our role is to go get other people to help them to fill the spirit so that we and the Holy Spirit are bringing them to the Son, so that the Son can bring them to the Father. And what we, we really need to learn, messengers. what we really need to learn from the members of the Godhead is there's no ego in Godhead. Yeah, yeah. The Holy Ghost does not feel slighted when he turns us to Jesus. And right. as you've already mentioned, this most divine of all Jesuses of the four Gospels never does anything without the Father. Yeah. And he's always doing his Father's will. And, and we've got to kind of learn from this, right? Uh, and, and we'll just talk briefly because, as you say, we won't have time to do the whole chapter. But, you know, John the Baptist doesn't feel slighted no. when Andrew and the other disciple leave him to go follow Jesus. He's in happy. Fact, he's encouraging them to do it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Well, let's just do a couple more things from this Logos hymn. And then let's talk about John, the prophet John, as I call him. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's why I was saving incarnation yeah. here. So we right. had the divine word who was spiritual yet divine. And now it's becoming the incarnate word, actually yes. the enfleshed word, right? Yeah. And what's really great about this passage in 14 is that it says he dwells with us. I had the wrong verse there. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There I am. Um, the, the Greek verb for dwelt is a skenosen which comes from the Greek noun skene, which is tent. Yep. So he pitched it's, his tent among us. Remember how it's said, tabernacle. This chapter always echoes Genesis and Exodus. And so you yeah. immediately think of the tabernacle, right? Yeah. And the which fact is that, that he, tabernacle means to temporarily dwell. And that's why the tent is called a tabernacle because it's for temporary dwelling. But the verb itself actually means temporarily dwell. Right. And so you have the divine word as Jehovah lived with his people in a tent last time. <laughs> now yeah. he's going to be tented in the flesh of the man, Jesus. Yeah. Um, there's uh, there's a line in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, it's not in the hymn book version, but it's Mac Wilberg's arrangement that we sing with the choir always says, um, veiled in flesh, our Lord is he. So you've got this idea of the divine word, Jehovah, is just thinly veiled in flesh, the flesh that Mary gave her son. Right. Which Power. we'll we'll see when we come to the Mount of Transfiguration and they finally can see him without that veil at least a little bit, right? So Right, right, exactly, exactly. Anyway, um, the next kind of prosaic aside, breaking from the poetic structures, verse 15, John bear witness of him and cry, this is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. I just want to point this out to your listeners. You know, we always call him John the Baptist to differentiate him from all the other Johns we know. Um, but actually, he never baptizes anyone in the Gospel of John. It's implied because we know that at the baptism, the Holy Ghost descended upon Jesus. And John will actually say, as we turn the page here, he'll say, you know, the one I saw the Spirit coming down upon, that's him. So we know he baptized him, but whereas his primary role in the Synoptic Gospels is to baptize for repentance generally and baptize the Son of God in particular. In this Gospel, John's primary role is as a witness. Yeah. 
And so in my little book, Becoming the Beloved Disciple, I always called him the prophet John rather than John the Baptist, because his major role here is as a witness of Christ. Hmm. And that's what gets the ball rolling in the second part of this chapter as we as we move into this idea of encounter and discipleship, the secondary thing. But anyway, um, just one final verse on this. We go back into this poetic description of of the word in verses 16 through 18 of his fullness. We have all received in grace for grace, but the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ because we're talking about parallel structure. And I know you're, you love the Hebrew Bible and, and you love things about that. I think it's interesting that the law that came through Moses, I think is the first grace, grace mm-hmm. for grace. Mm-hmm. So the first gift was the gift of the law, right? Which Paul later calls the schoolmaster bring us to Christ. Right. But now and they don't see it as a negative thing. It's a good. Thing. No, no, not at all. It was it was what separated us from the heathen. It's what brought right. us to God. It's what gave us the idea of holiness. It's yeah. as you love to covenant. teach and do so effectively. It gave us covenant. Yeah. Yeah. And now the law was given by Moses. But now we have further gifts, grace and truth coming by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. Now, I know we have a, a JST rendering here, which helps us with this a bit. But I don't know that we need to run away from it right away. No man has seen God at any time. And we're not quite sure what the grammatical construction is here. The only begotten son is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. I think it is perfectly permissible to say no man has ever seen God unless the son has declared and revealed him. Okay. Now, we get that more clearly in the JST. What does it say in the JST? No one has seen God at any time except he hath borne record of the son. For accepted through him, no man can be saved. Even the JST, the antecedent of the he there is a little unclear. Yeah. No man has seen God in time except he hath borne record of the Son. Does it mean we have to bear witness of the Son before we can come to the Father? Or is it, as is clearly evident through history, God never shows himself to us unless he is bearing witness of the Son? Yeah. Right? Whether it be at the baptism, this is my beloved Son in Matthew, or you, thou, my beloved Son in Mark and Luke transfiguration in all three. This is my beloved son. Sacred Grove, this is my beloved son. And there's a really interesting textual variant in this last part, uh, which is in the bosom of the father. He hath declared him. It, the only begotten son in that verse, the only begotten who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. There are early manuscripts that say the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father has declared uh, him. Really that's kind interesting. Really re-emphasizing that high Christology. He was yeah. God. But he's a God who got begotten, right? Yeah. Immortality, yeah. right? So he's a God. So God the Son is another way of saying that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing I want to say about that verse, who's in the bosom of the Father, that word bosom is going to show up again um, in the Last Supper mm-hmm. when the beloved disciple is in the bosom of, of the Savior, Jesus. Right. Pulpone is the word in Greek. What's great about that is the same relationship the only begotten God slash God the Son has with God the Father, that he's in the embrace of the Father, is the exact relationship we, the believers, have with Jesus. Yes. And the beloved disciple, in, in my little book, I really emphasize this, is meant to be a type for all believers. We're all disciples, and we should all be beloved. And so just as the beloved disciples in the arms of the Savior at the Last Supper, we can rest in his love at the sacrament. Just as the beloved disciples at the foot of the cross we can get a testimony he died for us. Just as the beloved disciple runs to the tomb, hoping it's empty, 
we too can have hope in the resurrection. And then the final scene, John 21, when he's walking after Peter and, and, and the Savior, the risen Lord in John 21, he is following him. We should continue to be disciples and following him. So, so that's kind of a powerful thing. And that's interesting that this is where we get the shift from the primary theme of this gospel, which is to show us the true divine nature of Jesus, the high Christology of John. And now we're going to shift to the secondary thing, which is discipleship. How do we get to be in the bosom or the embrace of the Savior, just as he is in the embrace or bosom of the Father? Wonderful, which which he ends up, as you say, you get this kind of bookends where he talks about him being in the bosom of the Father and then in the Last Supper, the John being in his bosom. And then just like a couple of chapters later, but still at that Last Supper, Christ actually teaching that in what we call the great intercessory prayer, where he says the same way I'm with the Father, you can be with me. And then we're all exactly. with one. right. So so he teaches that in a number of ways there. And, and what I think is incredibly powerful and to me, one of the most uplifting and edifying doctrines in John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, Carrie, I would just like to highlight a few things the rest of the chapter. We won't take it verse to verse because I know our time is almost up. But I do want to underscore this this theme of discipleship, which I think is so empowering for us, not only to see where did we get our witnesses and to whom we can bear our witnesses, but as you move on the rest of the, the next couple months reading in John, every time you see a character, ask yourself, how does this person respond to Jesus when this person encounters Jesus? What is this person's response of faith or not faith? They're not all positive, right? Some of the Jewish leaders don't respond to him positively at all. But everyone who gets a witness in John chapter one follows Jesus. And then you've got powerful examples. The mother of Jesus in Canaan chapter two, Nicodemus. It takes him the whole book to get there, but he starts in chapter three. But by chapter 19, he's burying Jesus and knows who Jesus is. The woman at the well in chapter four, you know, the, the Bethany family, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, that's what my little book, Becoming the Beloved Disciples, is about, is how all these characters come to Jesus and how the variety of people we find in the church today, you can find yourself a model in one of these characters in John. Yeah. But anyway, let's just, just look at a couple real quickly. I'll just summarize in the interest of time. We have what seems like kind of standard John material, starting with verse 19. You know, we have people come to John, who are you? And he's the voice, one crying in the wilderness, etc. But then almost right away, it shifts and it becomes more symbolic and a little bit more cosmic, for lack of a better term, than it was in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, after he's talked to the people who come and ask if he's the Messiah, the one they're waiting for, chapter 20, verse 29 says, the next day, John sees Jesus coming to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Years ago, I wrote a chapter on uh, the death of the Lamb of God for one of our Easter volumes. Mm -hmm. And this image is picked up again in the Passion Narratives of John, much more strongly than it is in the Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus is the Paschal Lamb. But it's the prophet John who establishes that imagery verbally at the beginning. Yeah. You are the Lamb of God. And remember how we said things are always broader and more cosmic and more conceptual than they are light, life, etc. Notice in verse 29, it's the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. People always want to say the sins of the world. In fact, when it was translated into Latin, they did make it plural. Agnus uh, Dei qui tollis peccata mundi, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that's not what John says. It's the state of sin. And I think it's more than just, you know, moral infractions. I, I think, as in the early Pauline letters that also use sin in the singular, I think sin is kind of shorthand for fallen state. Yeah. 
It's yep. the fallen state of the world, mortality, sickness, death, proclivity to sin. All yeah. of these things. And, and just lack of holiness that separates Absolutely. us from God. Once again, going back to your, your Hebrew Bible expertise. I mean, you, when you go through Leviticus, you have that whole holiness code. All these yep. supposedly picky laws are just to help drive home the idea of clean and unclean, holy and yep. unholy, right? Yep. And of course, and, this, and again, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just the world that the evangelist is working in. Yep. And and again, we are being driven back to Exodus and those concepts by the idea of the Lamb of God, because this is a, a Passover phrase that, that those who are hearing John the prophet or John the Baptist would immediately pick up on. Uh, right. and, and it would take them to that idea of holiness and lack of holiness and everything, because that's all in the same uh, part of the Bible, right? One of the things that's powerful about all the people who come to Christ in the second half of chapter one is they all come right out and use messianic titles. So John the Baptist will say in verse 34, I saw him bear record, this is the son of God. It takes a long time to synopsis the gospels till anyone says he's the son of God. Yeah. I think in Mark, well, in Mark, Peter at the at Caesarea Philippi says, Thou art the Christ. It's Matthew that adds the son of the living God. I yeah. think the first thing that says the son of God is the centurion at the cross, I think, in Mark. I mean, yeah. people come to know he's the Christ, but, you know, even that's halfway through the gospel that someone calls him the Christ. Yeah. But we have the prophet John say, this is the son of God. And then in what I like to call this great chain of witnesses, in verse 35 and 36, two of his disciples are with him the next day. He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples immediately leave John and start following Jesus. And they come to Jesus and say, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. I remember years ago, President Monson giving a talk called Come and See. Yeah, yeah. You know, come and see if this is true. But what Jesus was saying is, okay, you heard your master, your teacher say, I'm the Lamb of God. Now come and see if it's true. And they do, and they follow him. And then, of course, we suppose that the other one is John. John never names himself in this text. But let's say it's Andrew and John, the son of Zebedee. And then Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter. And what does he say in verse 41? We found Messiah, or he's yeah. the Greek term Christ. And then they go and find Philip. And then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. But when Philip finds Nathaniel, he says, This is the one that was written about in the law and the prophets. You know, this is Messiah. Yeah. Once again, you know, some people reading Mark even come up with this thing they call the messianic secret that Jesus didn't want anyone to know who he was. And I think that's a misreading of the text. But it's interesting that this gospel does not wait. It yeah. shows that people have his testimony right away. And Nathaniel, the last in this chain, he has this great Christological declaration. It says in verse 49, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. So we've had five people in the first chapter use all the messianic titles that take the entire gospel to unfold in a text like Mark or, Mark or Matthew. Yeah, uh, that's powerful. That's powerful. You're right. And so that's that's it. So you've, you've touched on a number of themes that I hope our audience will keep looking for. So I'm going to try and sum some of those up and you tell, correct me if I'm not saying it correctly. Right? But one of those is this theme of how people recognize who Jesus really is. And some will just prophet, some Messiah slash king, some son of God. And that that happens differently in John than we'll see it in the Synoptic Gospels. And even they differ from each other a little bit. So I think that's one of our themes. The theme of light that we've talked about, especially in the book of John, um, the theme of discipleship that you've talked about. And then it, it, maybe I don't know if it's most important It's the one I resonate with the most, the theme of who Christ really is and 
And that's often talked about who he is in relationship with the father. And I think you'll see that touched on in almost every chapter of John, but also who he is in relationship with us and his role in bringing those relationships together. I think those are some of the major themes we want to look for in the book of John. Have I, have I missed some? No, no, those are good. Those are great. Those are great. And then, as I said, look for diversity, you know, just kind of be looking ahead. Chapter two, the mother of Jesus, who knows better than his mom is divinely conceived, miraculously born. And so we see her as one of the greatest witnesses at the wedding at Cana, but also at the foot of the cross. Yeah. She's right there witnessing her son died. Then you have Nicodemus, this teacher in Israel, in other words, this is a BYU religion professor, who doesn't figure it out because he's all wrapped up in all of his learning and his teaching, and it takes him a long time. But, you know, Fiona and Terrell Givens in their book, Crucible of Doubt, talk about this. Sometimes intellectuals have a hard road to hoe. Yeah. But if they will humble themselves, that crucible of doubt, as they call it in their book, you know, it, it can pan, pan out. And it does for Nicodemus. Yeah. Jesus says in chapter three, when you see... As Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, you know, when you see the son of man raises, Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, you know, I'm he. And when Nicodemus sees Jesus raised on the cross, he finally gets it. So the answer for those of us, and in fact, in my book, at the end of each of the chapters, I, I have an application section. The application section is actually a personal story of myself having kind of faith crisis on my mission. I was thinking too hard. It's only when you root your testimony in Jesus Christ that you as an intellectual can pull your head out. Um, mm -hmm. to, to quote our friend Patrick Mason, his book, Planted, you've got to be planted firmly in Jesus Christ. It's great to be learned. What, does mean, what do we learn in the Book of Mormon? To be learned is good if you hearken the counsels of the Lord. The one that I think speaks so powerfully to the church today, particularly as we become more international and diverse, is the woman of Samaria, right? She's, on, she's an outside ethnic group, right? Samaritans look down on. She's a woman who doesn't have very good status in this period, in this culture. She seems to have had a bad lifestyle at some point, marital irregularities. I mean, she has three strikes against her. And yeah. she's the first missionary in the gospel. Yep. She she comes to know who Jesus is at the well. She's the one and runs and tells her village and converts all of the village. And that's the first time Jesus is called Savior in this text. The yeah. Samaritans and, say, okay, we're no longer believing because of your word. We now know ourselves that he is the Savior of the world. You and and it's the first time you see, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first time you see Jesus himself saying who he is, as opposed to yeah. others saying who he is. Right, right. So anyway, I, I hope your listeners will really be excited as they work through this text, not only to see the concepts, the principles, the symbols in the Gospel of John, look at the characters. As I said, I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time doing classical literature, and I, as, as I'm working on a commentary for John, and even as I was doing this little book, um, on becoming the beloved disciple, I, I read a lot of drama theory and, and about characterization. And the Gospel of John has these sharply drawn characters who represent more than themselves. They're not just historical figures, they're literary characters. And I think each of us should be able to find at least one, if not more, of these characters we can latch on to. But the point is, no matter, and I, you know, I'm a big proponent of diversity. But I like inclusion first. You know, we often have committees on college campuses for diversity and inclusion. I don't know if you remember this when we did one of these in our college. I said, yeah, yeah. why do you call this inclusion and diversity? Because <laughs> yeah. the first goal is to include everyone in the body of Christ, make everyone welcome. And then we can rejoice in our individual diversity. Well and said. What, what I do in the conclusion of my little book is I say, we can have lots of different walks of faith. You may be intellectual. You may be a woman. You may be a man. You may be from a different ethnic group. You may be from a different socioeconomic class. You may have a different level of education. But there are a few things we all need to share. 
And those sine qua nons, the things without which you can't be a disciple, are modeled by the beloved disciple. John's own example. Rest in the arms of the Savior's love. Stand at the foot of the cross and the testimony of his saving death. Run to the tomb to gain a testimony that he lives. And then, as the beloved disciple does, keep following him. Don't judge someone else's discipleship or walk of faith that might be a little different from yours. But just focus on those four things and keep your eye on Jesus. Amen. That's the perfect way to end. A amen. Thank you so much, Eric. For Thanks, Kerry. It's good uh, to see you, my friend. It's good to and see you. Enjoy, enjoy the Gospels and the whole New Testament this year. I, I hope we will. And I hope uh, that this has been helpful for our audience and you'll share it with uh, someone. If you found that the, this was helpful for you, you'll think of someone else it would be helpful for. And they'll all be blessed by <clears throat> by learning from uh, Dr. Huntsman, but mostly by what they'll be able to get from the Gospel of John. So thank you again, Eric, and thanks for You're welcome. Audience. Okay, take care. Have a great day.